0: to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. You guys doing good today? Oh, I am so excited for today's message. I almost didn't come because I preached it to myself like 15 times already, so, so this will be number 16. But we're, we're just going to jump right in here. Again, Scott uh, talked about our three-week challenge. It is our challenge, that if you're new, if you're a guest in the house, we just are thankful that you're here. We challenge you to come three weeks in a row because we believe that it takes about three weeks to decide whether or not a place is a good fit for you. It's hard to find a new church on one Sunday. And so if, if that's you here and, and you're going to take that challenge, we're excited We hope that if you complete that challenge, you come and let us know, as well as our membership class. That's your next step. After coming and dating us for a minute, the next step is to go steady. And so uh, we got a membership class coming up on the 27th that helps you see, like, the vision and what God's doing here and how you can get plugged in and involved and uh, attend awesome things like short business meetings after church, you know. So uh, we've got that coming up. So uh, we are excited for that. I just want to give a shout out to our youth team for putting on an awesome uh, back to school bash on uh, Friday night. A lot of work went into the preparation and plan. I know our kids had a great time. Uh, the color war was awesome. Getting ready, to, getting to pelt each other with bean bags full of chalk dust was fun. And uh, the pie eating contest was awesome. You know, I have to say I won. <laughs> Not losing to a middle schooler. I'm sorry, but. Uh, I got roped into that, but that was a lot of fun. I can still smell the whipped cream in my nose. Uh, should take some time to, to get uh, cleaned up, but it's all good. We're going to jump into Revelation. This is uh, week number 10. If you're following along online or listening in, we are getting ready to unpack the first part of the message to the church of Philadelphia. And so we're just going to jump in and begin reading in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, or you can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app on the events page. Of course, the verses will also be on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. This is Jesus to the church of Philadelphia. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will shut. We'll open, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way you've already been moving and bringing our hearts into the presence of the Lord as your word is being opened, God. Now we ask you to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart that is free to believe everything you've declared in your word, because your word is life, your word is truth. God, may it not fall on deaf ears or a cold heart. May it kindle a burning fire in us today as we celebrate what you have accomplished and who you are, Lord Jesus. You are the reason why we're here. You're the reason why we sing. You're the reason why we celebrate in in all God's people said, amen. I'm on fire, y'all. This is going to be good. Buckle up. We are going to get into some deep water here today. Again, we're only looking at this first verse. Jesus is using, as he's opening this opening words to this church in the Church of Philadelphia, he's using language to describe God Almighty, using terms of divinity that he associates with himself, the Holy One, the True One. These are, these are epithets for God Almighty, the way they would describe him or refer to God throughout the Old Testament. They are, Jesus is describing himself, as literally God Almighty, the words of the Holy One and the True One. And then he says something kind of strange, as if we didn't already know that he tends to do that in the book of Revelation. He says, I am the one with the keys of David. I am the one who has the key of David. Now, nowhere else in the New Testament is that language used. And so if you're just opening the book of Revelation for the first time and you're reading the key of David, you, you might be wondering, well, what in the heck is that? What, what is the key of David? And so the only other place this phraseology is found, this terminology is found, is in Isaiah chapter 22. But before we get to Isaiah 22, we have to set up kind of the backstory of what's going on so that you know what Isaiah is talking about when we get to Isaiah chapter 22, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Okay? So we're going to jump in. To look at what God says, Jesus says to the John as he's writing the Revelation, he says that he has another set of keys, not just the key of David. So in Revelation chapter 1, he mentions another set. And here's what he says in Revelation 1:17 and 18. This is John seeing Jesus, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Somebody say amen. Amen. Are you thankful Jesus is alive forevermore? Right? But then here's what he says. He says, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of what? Of death and Hades. So not only does he have the key of David, but he has the keys of death and Hades. So evidently, Jesus has a bunch of keys. He's kind of like a janitor. He's got a key for everything, it seems like. The, the other day, my you know, my wife, she uh, she gets on to me for kind of being a hoarder sometimes. I'm not real bad, but I have a tendency to hold on to things, and my key ring somehow over the years collects keys. And so she was going to borrow my car, and she got my key ring, and she's like, oh no. I'm not driving your car with this key, a key ring full of keys. you got to get rid of some of these keys. And so I had to go through and kind of trim my key ring down a little bit because I had a bunch of keys. I don't know why or where they all go to, but I, you know, I thinned them out for her, so now she can take my car. Now she just complains that it's dirty, so, um, but it's all good. But what does a key symbolize? A key symbolizes the ability to unlock something. So the understanding that Jesus is saying, is like, I have the keys of death and Hades, it's this understanding of importance that fills in the backstory of really where we get to the key of David because they're closely related. Now, when we look at the keys of death and Hades, that word Hades is often translated as the word hell. The keys of death and hell. And hell, we have this understanding, we have this mindset of what we think hell is like. The unfortunate reality is that the English language is probably the worst language to translate the Greek and Hebrew into because their words have multiple meanings. And depending on the tenses, the grammar, it could mean a whole slew of things, whereas in the English, we really only have one word to describe what they're talking about. For instance, we use the word love, and we know love has different nuances to it, But they had like five to seven different words for love in the Greek language. And and so we'll use that one word, love, and we have to determine by the context what we're talking about, whereas they would just use a different word. And so the English language makes it really hard to get the full picture of what's being described here. And so the same is true when you see a word that's translated as hell. Some of the uh, English translations will use that, the keys of death and hell. But the word hell in the New Testament is often the Greek word Hades. And Hades is the Greek understanding of the underworld. It's not just what we would think of as hell. It's literally the realm of the dead. And we see conceptions of this throughout the ancient world. And there are similarities between how the Greeks understood the underworld or the realm of the dead and the way the Jews understood the underworld. Realm of the dead. Matter of fact, when the Greek culture became the dominant culture, it even became the prominent language spoken in ancient Israel, which is why the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. So there in the the Old Testament there's a, a group of Old Testament rabbis that would translated the the Old Testament into the Greek language so the common Jewish person could read it, because Greek had become the dominated language. So there are influences that are shared between the the Jewish understanding of the realm of the dead and the Greek understanding of the realm of the dead. The Greeks believed that the underworld, or Hades, really consisted of two locations. So when a person died and they crossed the great river, they they paid the ferryman the toll to take the boat across the river into the underworld, They had an understanding of really two locations in the realm of the dead. There was this place called the Elysian Fields, or Elysium, which was the nice place. And then they had an understanding of the realm of the dead, the place where, you know, wicked people would go. So you had Elysium, the place for the righteous, and the realm of the dead for the wicked. In the ancient Jewish world, in the ancient context... They also had an understanding of the underworld, which is very similar. They called the underworld not Hades, but they called it Sheol. Sheol was the Hebrew word for the underworld. And they also believed that there were multiple levels or realms in Sheol. There was a place for the righteous and a place for the unrighteous. So when a person died, they would would go and they would be separated to their final destination in the realm of the dead. The wicked would be held in a place, they would be held captive in a place of torment. And the righteous, according to the ancient Jewish mind, would go to sleep with their fathers. You would see this a lot of times in the Old Testament. Like when Joseph died or when King David died, it would say, and he went to sleep with their fathers. Jesus in the New Testament, he tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And he uses a, a term for this place. He calls it Abraham's bosom. So the Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went into torment. They also had another word that they pulled from other languages around that time period. And Jesus uses this word when he's on the cross speaking to the thief when he says, Today you'll be with me in where? In paradise. So this Abraham's bosom, this, this place for the righteous or paradise The word symbolizes a garden or a a place walled in, a garden-like place lush with with, uh, trees and grass. This was the place for the righteous where they would go after death versus the place of torment for the wicked. So the Jews believed in a place for the righteous like the Greeks believed in Elysium. They had Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so in both ancient contexts, The names of the underworld were not just used to denote places. They were also personified and given human characteristics. And they were understood to represent not just the locations, but the spiritual powers associated that ruled over those locations. So Hades was the god of the underworld in the Greek mythology. He was believed to be the brother of Zeus. A scholar, Justin Bass, in his book, Battle for the Keys of Revelation, he writes, in Greek mythology, death is personified as a demon or monster from the underworld who is the sacrificer of the dead. So death wasn't just a thing that happens to a person. It was a place, and it was also personified as a spiritual entity. Uh, Michael Heiser, in his book, the Old Testament, the book of Revelation, he says, Death and Hades, in Revelation 118 are terms that speak to places, but readers will note they are also personified entities. This personification has well-known ancient Near Eastern Canaanite, Ugaritic, and Old Testament history. The personification is also evident in Second Temple Jewish literature with respect to Ugaritic material that is related to the Old Testament content, and the major figure is Mot, the Canaanite god of death. This term Mot is also the biblical Hebrew word for death, So in the ancient mind, when you refer to death, you are referring to what happens to a person when they die. You're referring to the place that they go. You're also referring to the spiritual entity in charge of the place they go. You tracking with me? Following me? And so when they refer to these places, they're also given personification. They're given characteristics and descriptions of what these entities are like. Mot is... Seem to have an unquenchable appetite. He's neither satisfied, or his appetite cannot be quenched. And the same is true about what is described for Sheol, or the place of the dead, in the ancient Jewish mind. Proverbs twenty-seven, verse twenty, says this: Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. The place of the dead is never satisfied. The Sheol again can be translated as death. Abaddon is a word that means destruction. So death and destruction are never satisfied. They can never be filled. In a similar way, death and Hades in the Greek mind in the New Testament are also described as being an unquenchable, unsatisfied place. What is also interesting here is that in the Old Testament, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty, that word Abaddon, that means destruction, is also a name of an entity in the book of Revelation that is in charge of the bottomless pit. In Revelation 9, verses 10 through 11, here's what it says. We'll we'll get there when we get to chapter 9. But the bottomless pit is opened, and these entities come out, and it says they have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them. Somebody say king. So this pit's open, these creatures are released, there is a king over them, he's the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name is the Hebrew Abaddon, and the Greek Apollyon. So the name of the entity who is lord or king over the bottomless pit is Abaddon, he is destruction, and in the Greek it is Apollyon. So the Bible depicts this being, a personification of death, as the Canaanite mot or a spiritual being and this angel that rules over the bottomless pit. He evidently, as king, has authority over the underworld, over Hades, or the Hebrew Sheol. And his name is Abaddon, the destroyer, the god of destruction. What's also interesting to note is the Greek name Apollyon is also where we get the name Apollo, who was the Greek god of the sun. He was the light bringer. He was also known as Lord of Archery, as well as Truth, Prophecy, Healing, and Disease. So what the Bible is telling us is there's a connection between Abaddon, destruction, and not only Mot from the Canaanites, but also Apollo in the Greek culture, and Hades, this understanding of this ruler of the underworld. And so the question we have to ask as we're, we're seeing this background information is, who is this being Who rules over the realm of the dead? Who is this destroyer that has authority or the keys to open Hades, the keys of death and Hades, and goes by so many names? Well, we get a glimpse of this identity beginning in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sin. God is handing out these consequences. He's handing out judgment, and he turns to the serpent, and he curses the serpent And not only does God declare there's going to be hostility between his offspring and the offspring of the woman, all of mankind, including the Messiah who would come, but also the Messiah would be his arch nemesis. But the Lord says to him in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, to the serpent, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, the book of Genesis was written in poetic fashion. So he's not actually talking to a snake in the garden. I don't know if you know this, but snakes didn't used to have legs and run around on the ground, like some people try to think. They try to say, well, this is talking about snakes having legs and they're running through the garden. No, this is a poetic metaphor of a spiritual reality. We don't have to be afraid of snakes spontaneously combusting legs and and running around. that would be really freaky. They're freaky enough as it is, right? So the serpent is cursed. What's he saying? He's knocked down from his feet, from his place of standing, his place of strength and authority, and he's knocked down to his belly, to a place of shame, to a place of struggle. And the position that he was holding, he was removed from this position, and now He is cursed to dwell in the dust and consume dust all of his days. That word dust is also translated as death or the underworld. So we have this picture of this being, a spiritual being referred to as the serpent or the nakash, a being of destruction, being cast down and given dust or death to consume all of his days. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter reveals that there was a place that God sent the angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6 that began to corrupt mankind, that when the flood came and he destroyed those beings and, and purged the world of corruption, he sent those angels to a specific place. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 4, it says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell... And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That word hell is not Hades. That word hell, again, again, we're using the same word for multiple locations. That word hell is the word Tartarus, which also comes out of Greek mythology or the Greek culture. Tartarus was the place of the wicked in Hades. So again, Hades is the underworld. You had the Elysium field for the righteous, and you had Tartarus for the wicked. And here Peter is telling us that when God overthrew these angels that corrupted mankind in Genesis 6, he sent them down into the place of judgment, to the place of torment, to be held in gloomy chains of darkness, this place called Tartarus. Now again, Tartarus was known by the Greeks to be the place the Titans were 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 sent after the gods overthrew the Titans in the great battle So even the Greeks had an understanding that there's this place, this place of torment, and these fallen spiritual entities that were overthrown were sent there into Tartarus. Now, Tartarus was also personified by the Greeks. It was believed to be also a divine origin or like a god. But this god uh, didn't have human characteristics. According to uh, theoi.com, this god Tartarus took the form of a giant pit that enclosed all of the cosmos in an egg-like shape. So it was a giant, bottomless pit that consumed all of the cosmos. So you can see the similarities between what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament, and the understanding of the Greek culture at the time. There was the bottomless pit. It's the place where the fallen angels were sent and put in prison, the place of torment as opposed to the place of the righteous. So it appears that in Sheol and in Hades, there are multiple levels or multiple realms. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 23, we don't have it here for you, but it depicts the fall of the Assyrian or these Assyrian warriors. And it said that they are going to go down to the uttermost parts of Sheol or the uttermost parts of the pit. This would be Tartarus. This would be the place of the wicked. So there are multiple areas. So in our mind, when we think of hell, we think of that, there's just one place. That's not so for the Jewish mind. There were multiple levels, there were multiple locations, and there was a place for the righteous, and there was a place for the wicked. And the ruler over all of it, over the pit, over the, the place of the righteous and over the place of the dead, was the devourer or the destroyer. He had the keys. And therefore, he had authority. And we can see how this destroyer is connected to the serpent all throughout Scripture, but especially here in Genesis chapter 3. And so the question is, is, how did he get this authority? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans 5. It says, when Adam sinned, sin brought death into the world. So the moment we rebelled, this reality, this existence was born. Death came into the world, and now we are all cursed by death because death was brought in by sin and all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So the in Paul, in Romans chapter 6, he tells us the wages of sin, what we earn, is death. So not just physical death, how everything is heading towards destruction. That's one of the laws of thermodynamics. Everything is heading toward entropy. Ultimately, at some point in the distant future, all of the cosmos is headed towards destruction. It's this principle of of entropy. This is a biblical principle that the moment we're born, we're destined to die. The writer of Hebrews says that every human being is appointed once to die and then comes the judgment. So there's this reality that we are appointed to die. So what did sin ultimately do? Sin gave the destroyer, he gave the serpent, he gave him authority in this world, that's why he's called the God of this world, and he gave him a claim to every human life. God may determine when you die, but like in the book of Job, he has given authority to sow death, pain, and suffering in your life. And when you die, he's given authority over your soul because of sin. Not only is the nakash, the serpent, the snake, or the dragon a subtle beast of destruction with its poisonous bite, but Jesus refers to him also as a type of destroyer. John eight forty four. 44, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, you are the, of your father, the devil, and your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer From the beginning, he was a destroyer from the beginning. He was a spirit of death from the beginning. John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The devil is a murderer. He's a bringer of death. He is the destroyer. And that word steal, kill, and destroy, destroy is the same word we get Apollyon or Abaddon, the destroyer. So the servant, the devil, he was cursed to consume dust, to consume death, and he's identified with not just the destroyer in the book of Revelation, but with every being in every culture that was the lord of the underworld or the lord of death. What's interesting to note is Apollo was also, again, the god of archery, and what does Paul tell us in Ephesians 6? Put on all the armor of God that you may withstand the fiery darts of the devil. So the Bible is giving us clues. Who is this Lord of death? Who is the Lord of the underworld? Who had the power of sin and death? In Hebrews chapter 2, again, he tells us that Satan had the power of death, and he used it to enslave all humanity through the fear of dying. So again, the moment you die, you enter into the underworld. And there was a fear of that has been placed on all of humanity, a fear of dying, which is why we try so hard to stay youthful, to stay young. This fear of dying is what keeps all the cosmetic companies in power. Keeps them coming, right? A new serum, a new, a, a new gel, a new whatever, it doesn't matter. If it's new, we're going to try it. Right? I mean, a little too many amens on this area over here but it's true, right? We, we know instinctively that we're meant to live forever, but we can't because we're always dying. The old must die, the young may die. And the reality is because of sin, when you die, you are separated from God. And you are held in a prison until one day you could be delivered. And this is where the idea of purgatory came from, from the church fathers, is because even the righteous in the Elysian fields or in the Abraham's bosom in paradise, even they were prisoners. They weren't with God, and they weren't free to go. They were captives. They were prisoners, and they were waiting for redemption. The saints in the Old Testament were looking forward to the coming of Messiah. We look back to his coming. We look back to the cross. They were looking forward to his sacrifice. We're looking back at his sacrifice. And again, if you were of the lucky few, you might make it into paradise, depending on how righteous you were. You might make it into paradise, but for the vast majority, she, God says the way to salvation is narrow, but the way to destruction is wide. There are few who find the way of salvation, but many who find the way of destruction. So the lucky few will go to paradise, but the many would go into Tartarus, would go into torment. And when they would enter into the other world, into the underworld, they would have to pass gates. Just as in heaven we see the gates of pearl to welcome the righteous, to welcome those who would receive salvation, in the underworld there are gates of hell. Hell. And they're meant to keep people in and not let them out. The gates of heaven welcome people in. The gates of hell keep people in. Jesus even acknowledges the existence of these gates in Matthew sixteen eighteen. It's a very popular verse of Scripture. We like to quote it when we're talking about doing things for the Lord, standing against the enemy. Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus telling us that there are gates of hell is confirmation of their existence. There are gates in the underworld that bar people from life, from everlasting life. And again, if you have gates, how do you open them unless you have keys? So as we see, someone had the keys. They belonged to Sheol. They belonged to Abaddon. They belonged to death and Hades. So the question is, and here's where it starts to get good. Here's where we're going to have some fun. The question is, how did Jesus get the keys? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Therefore the children, sharing flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Come on. He came to life. He was, again, think about it. Heaven became intersected with earth in Jesus Christ so that Jesus could then leave the flesh and go into death to conquer it. God became flesh so that he could destroy the power of death with death and make the Lord of the underworld impotent. And he did this by dying on the cross and entering into the underworld. So what the writer of Hebrews is alluding to, he's alluding to Jesus after his crucifixion, as he goes into the grave, he enters into the ultimate spiritual battle. And here's where we get to Isaiah chapter 22. When... God spoke through the prophets. He would often use real people, real places, real circumstances to give us a prophetic meaning of what the Messiah would do, accomplish, or fulfill. And so here in Isaiah chapter 22, again, this is the only place the phrase keys of David is included in all of the Bible other than in Revelation chapter 3. And so in like fashion, here is God prophesying to a particular person And in it, he's declaring that he's going to take this leader who's over Israel, he's going to overthrow him, and establish somebody else. But it is a picture of what God is going to accomplish through the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, we're just going to read it, and then we're going to break it down. Here's what he says. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, come, go to the steward who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do, Shebna?'" Here, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize a firm hold on you, whirl you around and around, throw you like a ball into a wide land, and there you shall die. And there you shall shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. Ooh, that's cold, isn't it? For God to call someone the shame of his master's house. He says, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key, somebody say the key, of the house of David. He shall open, somebody say open, and no one will shut, and he shall shut, someone say shut, and no one shall open. There it is. And I will fasten him like a pig in a secure place. He will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. So when we look at this picture, again, he's talking to a real person at a real place in a real time. But just like the enemy, the serpent, was thrown down from his place of honor, so too is this ungodly steward being thrown down from his place of honor who was building a tomb for himself in the rock. What do you find in tombs? Death. So in prophetic writing, again, names mean everything. The name Shebna means vigor or youthful. And what is often found amongst the youthful? But arrogance and pride, they know everything, and you can't tell them nothing. We've all been there. We've all done it. And hopefully we've grown up. So here he's making a name for himself, this Shebna, as if he deserved this honor, but just like the Lord rebukes the devil in the imagery of the supernatural rebel in Genesis 3, again in Isaiah 14, you could turn there, this being trying to make a throne for himself to raise it above even God's stars. God casts him down, and so too he casts down Shebna from his place of honor. So Isaiah is metaphorically connecting Shebna's account with the casting out of the devil from his place of honor in heaven to the underworld. And I love the language used in Shebna's judgment. God says, "I'm going to toss you around like a rag doll. I'm going to whirl you around. I'm going to throw you like a ball into a wide into a vast land." And I can see Jesus doing this very thing. Going down into death, and the enemy standing up against him and Jesus just taking him and whirling him and throwing him around. Kind of like at the end of the first Avengers movie where Hulk smashes Loki. You know what I'm talking about? It might not be as good to uh, talk about it, but let's watch it. Enough. You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dumb creature. And I will not be bullied by that. Oh, how I love that scene. This demonic figure, which is what Loki is, gets thrashed by a bigger and badder foe. And as the Hulk is done with him, he's laying there stunned like he didn't know what hit him. What's he say? Puny God. What's Satan want to be? Like the Most High. You think you're a god? No. You're a puny God. And I could just admit, Man, if I was there, I'd be like, you get him. Spank that devil, Jesus. Come on, spank him. Spank him. Come on. Spank that devil. Go get him. Get after him, you know. If I was there, I'd be like, take that, B Elzebub. You know, I'd be like, get him, Jesus. That's what he was doing. He took the devil and he smacked him around, tossed him around like the destroyer of nations, the one who brought sin into the world, the result of suffering and death that's been passed upon us, and devil got beat by a greater God. He was kicking some royal Satan butt. Not only did he do that, Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed The rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame. You shame of your father's house. The one who covered the throne of God, who walked in the stones of fire, responsible of leading worship in heaven, was cast down because he's a shame. When pride was found in his heart, he disarmed those rulers, put them into shame by triumphing over them. He rips the keys of authority over death. And Hades from his hand. And he dethrones the destroyer and revokes his authority. And what's he do in three days? But he comes back from the dead. Death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? And all throughout Isaiah, the phrase my servant is a hint to messianic themes. He uses it over and again to refer to Israel and and, and other people like Jacob and then also to the Messiah. And here in this account for Shebna, after he casts him down and whirls him into this vast land, he then calls Eliakim to take his place. and says, I'm going to give him your authority. I'm going to put his rule upon the shoulders of Eliakim. He'll get the keys of David. Do you know what the name Eliakim means? It means who God has raised up. Woo! Vigor is going down. Youthful is going down. But the one who God has raised up is coming to rule. And Eliakim is also Eliakim is also referred to as the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah means God is my portion. The God who is raised up is the portion of all who believe. The gift God gave to men is the Messiah, Emmanuel, God in flesh. And he says he'll have the keys of David. This reminds me of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. which says that he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, And the government shall rest on his shoulders. And to that he will have no end as he rules from David's throne. Another nod to the story in in relation to Jesus overcoming Satan is, do you remember when we were reading what God calls Shebna? He calls him, O you strong man. In the New Testament, as Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees for calling his miracle work demonic as he's casting out demons. Here's what he says in Matthew 12:28 and 29. He says, if it's by the spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a what? Strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. When Jesus went down and took the authority, he also bound the strong man. And then what he what was he able to do? He was able to plunder his house. Not only does Satan or Jesus beat Satan up on his own turf, but he takes his stuff. That's bad. Jesus is a bad man. He's a bad man. Pajama. I'm not just gonna beat you up, I'm gonna take your stuff. You're going to run naked out of here. You know what I mean? First Peter 3, 18 and 19, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. After he beat Satan to a bloody pulp, he goes to the realm of the righteous. How do we know? He told the thief, you'll be with me in where? In paradise. So he goes to the prison holding the righteous, and he begins to proclaim, Hey, y'all, you know that salvation you've been waiting for, the one you've been waiting for? Ta-da! I'm here, and I got the keys. I got the keys. There's freedom. He was proclaiming freedom to the captives. Ephesians 4, and 9 says, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Again, in victory, Jesus opens the prison doors of Sheol. He opens the gates of hell, proclaiming to the ones who were righteous captives, awaiting a salvation that salvation had come. And notice it says that he led a host of captives when he ascended. Do you remember what the scripture tells us, what the gospel tells us happened when Jesus rose from the dead. How we can know this is true. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, when Jesus rose from the dead, and it says, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. He proved it. He didn't just come back by himself. He brought those in captivity, the fallen saints, Before Christ, he brought them back from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of those who would be risen from the dead. When he rises, he rises with those keys. He has all power and authority, and he proves it by bringing them back to life, swinging wide the gates of hell. So now that place of paradise, that place of Elysium, Abraham's bosom, it no longer exists in the underworld. Those who are now in Christ no longer have to fear death after death or separation from God. Jesus in John 11 said, those who believe in me will live even after dying. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away with the Lord, away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. What's Paul saying? He's saying the prison we have to wrestle with now is not the underworld, it's this flesh. It's this flesh. And I would rather be with Jesus in glory than bound up in this flesh. But he says while I'm here it's for me to live as Christ. So while I'm here, it's all about Jesus. But there's a day coming when I don't have to worry about this flesh anymore. I'm going to go be with the lord we don't go down into the grave if we're with christ we are risen to the paradise of heaven to the eden in eternity it's glory for the believer and this gives meaning to what jesus said in matthew 16:18 he says and i tell you you are peter on this rock i'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so it's on the confession that Jesus is Lord, belief in his death and resurrection, that upon this rock, his church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What does that mean? I know a lot of people have many interpretations, and I've, I've heard that to be used, that, you know, what do gates do? They, they're, they're meant to keep people out, and so the church is going to go bang on the gates of hell, but that's not at all what the context is talking about. The gates of hell weren't meant to keep people out. They were meant to keep people in. They kept spirits locked in their prison. What Jesus is saying is because of the shed blood of Christ and his glorious resurrection, there is no power to keep the believer in prison. The doors are open. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open because he has the key of David. He's risen with all authority and power. Remember I was telling you Jesus is like a janitor? He thought I was joking. But he's not like a janitor like a school janitor. He's like a mafia hitman janitor. He used the keys to not only clean out the underworld, rescue the righteous, and mop the floor with the devil, but he also has another set of keys related to the keys of David. And in this very next verse... Just after he declares the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, here's what he says in verse 19. This is to his disciples, which is to us as the church. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, many of us, we use this verse in spiritual warfare as the church coming against the works of the devil. We Often you'll hear people pray, I bind that in Jesus' name. I, I loose that in Jesus' name. And you can apply that here, but that's not what he's talking about. The context is about the gates of hell. And now the keys that he has, the keys to the kingdom of God, are being given to the church So what's he saying? He's saying we have now the authority to open the door of the kingdom to those who don't believe or close the door of the kingdom. We can open the gates of hell to those who are in prison or we can close the gates of hell. We have the authority to either pull people out of the fire Or leave them burning in it. You're like, what do you mean, leave them burning in it? Jesus tells us in John 3.18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him, the Messiah, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Hell isn't coming. Hell is already here. A person who doesn't believe in Christ isn't going to be condemned to hell. They've already been condemned to hell. When they die, they're just going to go there. The only saving grace for an unbelieving soul is an encounter with the risen Lord through the preaching of the gospel, the death and resurrection. Believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Purgatory does not exist because Abraham's bosom, Elysium, the waiting place of the righteous, ascended to heaven with the Lord. To be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. Where's the Lord? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. There is no waiting game. It's gone. It's now Christ and Christ alone. He said in John 14, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by" Me. Your good works aren't gonna cut it. Your extra donation this month isn't gonna do it. It's faith in the one and only Son of God. And so the God is not sending people to hell. Hell is already their reality. And so the call for us to be faithful is we've been called. Through all of these letters we've looked at so far, and the call to be faithful as a disciple is not just a call to keep your nose clean and do what's right. It's a call to be faithful in our mission to make disciples of every nation, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to pull people out of the fire because we're the ones that have the keys. The key to open the door to the gates of hell is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You ain't getting in any other way. If we don't tell them, how can they know? If faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, how can anyone get to heaven unless they hear what Jesus has done for them? How can they find freedom? The most important mission or goal in life is to help Jesus rescue the world from death. And, beloved, there is no greater privilege in all the world. There's no greater calling in all the world than to know and be loved by Christ. We have the keys of the kingdom. He's given them to us. He did all the hard work. He did the tough job. He did what we couldn't do. He took care of it. Now all he wants us to do is unlock the door. It's unlock the door. So the question I have for you is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the keys? What are you going to do with your coworkers? Your neighbors? What are you going to do with your family members? What are you going to do with the cashier at Walmart? What are you going to do with the waiter at the next restaurant you go to? Are you going to keep them locked out? Or are you going to open the door so they can come on in? Are you going to leave them burning? Or are you going to help them put the fire out? He did what we couldn't do. He rose with all power and authority. He has the keys of death and Hades, the key of David, the keys of the kingdom, and he's given us the keys. The call to be faithful is to be faithful in our mission. We're not here just to live 70, 80 years comfortably, to retire early, and enjoy weekends up north and winters in Florida. Our call is to be disciples to every nation. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we meditate on the word, beloved, We need to understand the importance of the hour in which we live. He is coming soon. Every day it gets closer and closer to that day. What are we going to do with the keys? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Genuinely, truthfully. Is he Lord? Is he the leader of your life? Are you working to come into an agreement with his word? Are you working to surrender more of your life to him so that he can lead you to fulfill the purpose that he had for you before the foundation of the world? Do you know someone that needs to accept Jesus Christ? Are you interceding for him? Are you telling him? Are you planting seeds? What are you going to do with the keys that he's given you? Lord God, I just pray in this moment, as your spirit is speaking, what a victorious thing you accomplished. Man, if we could only get a picture view of that battle. But Lord, what that means for us is that now it's our turn. Now it's our turn to take every thought captive and submit it to the obedience of Christ. Now it's our turn to say, not my will, yours be done. Now it's my turn to confess my sins to my brothers and sisters in Christ that I might find healing and then go and help someone else out of their mess. To bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of love, the law of Christ. Now it's my turn to be active in battle, wearing the full armor of God that I might be able to stand in the evil day. To be found faithful To be found waiting, to be found active and not asleep, to be awake spiritually minded so I'm earthly good God I pray that revival would come as your word is declared that the scales would fall off our eyes, that the plugs would come out of our ears that the hardness around our hearts would be melted and that Jesus when you look at us you could say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you need to begin a relationship with Jesus? Do you need to rededicate your life to Him? What is it that the Spirit is calling on you to do? With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward for just a few moments. If you need to begin a relationship with Jesus right now where you are, The Bible says if you confess him with your mouth and you believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right now, you can do it. You can make that decision. You can confess him. You can utter a simple prayer. If you mean it with your heart and you believe in your heart, the gospel message, when you call on his name, you'll be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be made white as snow. His blood will cover you. His spirit will come live in you and you'll be a new creation. And when your time comes to pass from death to life, it will not be the gates of hell, but the pearly gates of glory that you see. If that's you here today, would you pray this with me? Say, Father in heaven, how great is your name, and how great is your love for me, that you would send Jesus to die in my place and you brought him back to life so I could live please forgive me of all my sins today I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and today and forever he is my Lord and Savior and I will not be quiet I will not stay silent but I'm going to live to make him famous. Fill me with your spirit. Empower me to honor you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. I just want to pray a blessing. If that was you here today and you prayed that for the very first time and said, I gave my life to Jesus today, would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? I won't call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray a blessing for your life. Anyone? Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray for the one who raised their hand today. I pray, God, in Jesus' name, you would fill them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet with your presence. I pray, God, that right now they would know they are completely forgiven. They are made new. They are loved infinitely by the God of all creation that Jesus is their Savior, that the Spirit is their comforter, God, and they have a family here in the church of Jesus Christ, Lord. And we celebrate because, like, we know that your word says you celebrate in heaven when one turns to you. So, God, we give you praise. We give you celebration. We celebrate you for your goodness as you are celebrating over this one that raised their hand. And, God, I just pray you bless their week. I pray that things that are out of alignment would come into alignment that anything that's in their way, anything that's causing struggle or turmoil in their life, God, that you would make that crooked path straight. God, that you would provide supernaturally for needs, that you would open doors of opportunity, and that, God, your love and your light would shine through them. I pray that they'd leave here encouraged, knowing, God, that they are a child of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And now, God, I pray for the church. I pray, Lord, for that revival fire. And I pray, God, that we would respond. We would not be content with staying in our seats as you are leading, but we'd respond to the call to be faithful. In Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you.